Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where you go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, as Innovation. I'm your host, Paulo Quina. And we're actually back with, you know, a, a special episode from Insignia Ventures Academy. It's been a while since we've had one of these episodes where we usually bring on either alumni from the 12-week VC Accelerator program or some of the mentors have become part of the community. And so we've had a number of these episodes in the past since season three. And if any of our listeners out there are interested in finding out who else we had on call from, you know, Insignia Ventures Academy, both alumni and mentors, you guys can check out that. We'll, we'll link it in the podcast description. But for this episode in particular, we have a we have another alumni with us from cohort one, the inaugural cohort of Insignia Ventures Academy. So it's been, I'd say, like quite a while since his experience, but he's certainly done a lot since he's changed careers. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that and also his academy experience. So none other than Harsh Rongta from cohort one. So before we go on call, be sure to give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platforms. And stay tuned for our latest insights on our Twitter at InsigniaVC and Instagram at Insignia underscore VC. Now let's get into the call. So Harsh, thanks so much for coming on the show. How have you been doing? Thank you so much, Paolo. Thank you for inviting me to the show. I've been having a good time since I changed my job and more so because I had a long break before I started with Sint. So it was a good three weeks in Italy. After that, <laughs> definitely just seems good. Right, right. It was Italy a place that you wanted to go after, you know, as, as, as a way to take a break? Or was it always a place that you would go to when taking a break? So it was all on agenda for a while. But as you know, with COVID, it's been trips have been planned, cancelled, planned, cancelled. <laughs> right, 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 right. Doing that a few times, I was finally thankful that we managed to do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess it, it all lined up perfectly, finally getting that trip and then now moving into something new, which is always exciting. So a little bit on, on Harsh before, you know, I, we, we get into our whole conversation. So he's had, you know, really a long career in banking, all the way from Citibank to spending more than a decade at Bank of Singapore's managing director, you know, really working with a lot of these high net worth, ultra high net worth clients across, you know, South Asia, India and Southeast Asia. And then he's also, apart from, you know, his day job, I guess, he's also been an investor as well in many different startups across the globe actually i think some in, in israel some in across asia as well so really an extensive experience looking at different you know startup ecosystems and then now as he just mentioned he, he's now moved into his new role as the ceo of carbon graphic advisors which is a family office based in singapore but managing indian wealth right yeah so to, to get right into it right so i wanted to kick things off when i usually ask this for all the alumni who come on call with us you know, what excites you about Southeast Asia today? And especially, you know, from the perspective of your role now with Carbon Graphite and, you know, managing, you know, the wealth of an Indian family office. Well, I, I think actually as CEO of a family office, there's lots on my table to be excited about. But more specifically with regards to the Southeast Asia tech ecosystem, I think what I am really, really excited about is that finally there have been some meaningful exits. Right, you had Grab, you had Property Guru, you had Bukala Park, you had Bodo, C, and many more in the pipeline. Finally, this announces our arrival on the big stage, quite frankly, as a region. It closes the loop for the ecosystem and it reinforces investor confidence. So, this is, I think, a big development that I'm really excited about. I feel it encourages on more entrepreneurs to come and try out new things. It brings in new capital into the region. So it 
really, really makes the ecosystem so much more complete because it's good to have a lot of startups, a lot of activity and all of those things. But if you have no exits, then still you're missing that finalizing on the cake. So therefore, from that point of view, now as CEO, what, what it also means for our family office perspective is that, you know, if an ecosystem is complete, you definitely get to see more deals in that ecosystem. And on the other side, as an investor, it also gives you an opportunity to encash some of your investments. So that's, that's the thing, you know, I've been saying that I think it's finally that point has come for Southeast Asia where you can talk about exits. I think that's a, you know, a, a really important point, especially given the current global market climate that we have and why Southeast Asia still remains very, I guess, active, at least in pulling in a lot of different capital. You have a lot of funds making their comebacks with new funds. You have global VCs also announcing funds specifically dedicated to Southeast Asia. And you have family offices like yourselves also, you know, making more, more of these investments into, you know, Southeast Asia startups in particular. But I think that's largely in part due to, you know, what you just mentioned, which is all these exits and importantly, public market exits, not just M&A exits as well. Just to be fair, irrespective of what happened after exit, <laughs> let's leave that aside. Even if the box bank or whatever happened. But the fact is that the exit happened, you know, that I was trying to avoid the whole <laughs> discussion right there. Cause it's a, it's definitely a, another animal to tackle for sure. But just getting into that, as you mentioned, getting into that stage, proof of work, essentially that, exactly. that it, it can happen, can be really, you know, motivating for investors and founders. But before we get into that whole, and specifically, I wanted to talk about that whole family office, getting into startups kind of dynamic. I also wanted to talk about from your own personal career perspective, like why did you decide, you know, having spent so many years already in Bank of Singapore to at this point, you know, transition into, you know, specifically a family office. I think I was very comfortable doing what I had, was doing at Bank of Singapore. And I quite frankly enjoyed my entire journey where I saw the bank really grow and mature from being a really newbie in Asia to being a powerhouse in Asia. But working for banks or any large organization is a different ball game. And I think now my reason for shifting to a family office kind of a setup was, I think I found this to be more entrepreneurial in terms of freedom of decision-making, the things that we could look at and do, and I could probably take charge of this and have the freedom to decide those things. And besides that is generally my belief that Asian family office scene is where we are going to see a lot of exciting transactions happen in the future. And being an early mover in this space just gives me a head start. So I guess in some ways, it's, I guess there are a lot of similarities to what you were doing in Bank of Singapore, but again, it's also very different. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit about that because you were in, in Bank of Singapore, you were also talking to a lot of high net worth clients, and then you were also already angel investing into startups, which I think you now bring into, into this role as well in the family office, right? Yes. So I think yes, similar, but the slight differences are banks are designed to be regulated entities, right? So they have a lot of restrictions and norms in terms of before they can put anything in front of the client and talk about those things. So sometimes scale size becomes an issue. Sometimes just the sheer requirement of a track record becomes an issue. But when you're a more independent setup, you have a bit more leeway in terms of if some of those parameters are not met, you still could consider a transaction because everything else about it looks very exciting. 
So it's just, there's nothing right or wrong about it. Those institutions are meant to have those kind of rules and guidelines for them to operate in. But a smaller setup means that you have slightly more flexibility and independence in decision-making. And you can probably definitely do things a lot faster. <laughs> yes. So I wanted to zoom in now to the full, to this whole, like, I would say phenomenon that we're seeing in Southeast Asia that has been happening for several years now, even before the pandemic of, you know, a lot of family offices setting up in Singapore, for example, that normally weren't in the region or a lot of like Chinese wealth. That, that grew during the whole like tech boom there that are now moving into Southeast Asia after the market in China has been sort of like saturated and, and not as vibrant as, as in Southeast Asia. And then now you have also Indian family offices that are interested in the region as well. So from your view, how has this whole relationship between family offices and the whole venture landscape evolved over the past decade, right? And, and where do you see it going in the next few years? So I, I've seen a massive, massive shift in mindset. You know, if I were to rewind back to, let's say, 15 years ago, I have literally seen portfolios with zero allocation to any venture capital investments. And even for large, meaningful portfolios, there was very little allocation. So from that point, fast forward to 2020, it almost became a FOMO, where if you didn't have a few startup investments that you could talk about at a cocktail party, you felt, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm kind of nowhere in the scene. What am I doing? So that's the sort of transition that literally has happened in a very casual manner, if I were to describe it. But on a more serious note, from no allocation to meaningful, respectable allocation, respectable percentage allocation in the portfolio is what we have seen as a transition. You know, for large, serious investors, Private markets are not just conversation pieces, but they have respectable allocation in the portfolios. And as this demand has grown, at the same time, banks, other service providers have been also very quick to capture this shift in mindset. And they've built capabilities to offer these investment opportunities to clients. So from almost, I'd say, being non-existent, it's become central to discussions for most large portfolios and family offices. Right, right. Yeah, so if you find yourself in a cocktail party, still wondering why you don't have any startup investments yet, then you know what's up. But, but yeah, so, so I also want to talk about that, you know, from no allocation to now a lot of meaningful allocation that's very central already to portfolios of many of these family offices. And that relationship also sort of changed, right, from it's not just about investing as LPs, but you also see family offices directly investing into startups themselves. Some fundraising rounds that are just completely filled with family offices. You don't even see like a, a VC or, or other other investors there in those some some of these rounds, right? So, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on that kind of evolution as well? So, I generally think you know, while some some people may see it threatening, some people may see that family office may just crown out some investments, but I think each investor category has their own strengths, and it's probably good to have all types of investors to deepen the overall ecosystem. You know, you should have VCs, family offices, angels, because each of them brings something different to the table. And I, I think going forward, nobody should feel threatened by family offices now wanting to consider to be a part of the cap table. But I think also, to be fair, I don't think any family office just wants to be a part of the cap table for the heck of it, unless it's an area which they understand very well, 
or the investment is very sizable, I don't think they would just want to get into it for the heck of it. I actually want to be a little bit more specific with that in terms of how does the family office differentiate in terms of their, you know, what they bring to the table as an investor, right? And what should founders, I guess, look at when considering family offices to bring in as investors? See, I think uh, family offices in most cases, if, if the tickets are not very large, they're going to be more like LPs, which means that they bring in more passive, stable capital in a sense where the investor is not really involved in the business as such, but is a patient long-term investor really. And other than that, the advantage is again, the network, because a lot of family offices like to co-invest with other family offices because of just the sheer connections or family connections or comfort in working with each other. So if there is a transaction that maybe I've seen a couple of family offices that we're very close to participate in, there's quite high likelihood that we would consider that and we would feel that it's gone through a few rounds of sort of due diligence or scrutiny and now we are more comfortable in looking at it. So the network effect, patient capital, I think those are things generally that family offices would bring as LPs. But if the ticket is large and families understand that business, then I think they bring a whole lot in terms of even probably expertise from their own core business side, which could help the venture as well. And we see that a lot in, in Southeast Asia, like local families that are sort of at the helm of many different industries, also trying to get, get visibility into how these industries are also being digitalized as well. I also wanted to ask about, you know, since we've, we've written actually in Insignia Business Review a lot about Chinese wealth going into Singapore, but I also wanted to know how things are looking from, from the India side of things as well. What specifically are Indian families looking at in Southeast Asia, maybe perhaps different to other markets? And are they bringing anything differently from families in other markets? Yeah. So I wouldn't say that there is a difference in terms of the sectors or industries or areas that they're looking at. See, there is definitely a substantial flow of Indian wealth also into Southeast Asia in a lot of investments, which overall I feel is good because Southeast Asia is, for many reasons, home to a lot of these people. It is home because maybe they've established an holding company here to have better access to international capital. Either they own businesses in the region or even like things like their family offices are set up here or their kids are going to school in places like Singapore. So once you have something on the ground in a particular area, then you understand the market dynamics of that region better, which again makes you kind of patient long-term investor. You know, you're not coming in to capture some trend that, okay, right now is just looking like the flavor of the season. So let's go and invest there. But if you understand the market, you are entrenched in it, you understand the dynamics, then you are not just an opportunistic investor, but more of a patient long-term investor. And the last thing any market needs is only fair weather friends. So from that aspect, I think the influx of Indian capital into Southeast Asia compared to maybe US or Europe is probably a better thing, I'd say. And speaking of patient capital and sort of how that would make family offices a little bit different from, say, other types of investors, what would you say to folks who are listening, who are maybe considering, you know, who want to participate more actively in a family office or, or maybe change things around in terms of portfolio composition or become like a fund manager like yourself? 
yeah, especially as we're seeing a lot more fund managers who are, I guess, more in touch with the startup ecosystem, right? Not necessarily having to learn everything from scratch. I think patient capital means in terms of our investment decision making, we are not very trading oriented. So we're, we're not looking at being day traders, buying something now, selling something tomorrow. Even when it comes to public markets, which are fairly liquid and you could do ins and outs very easily. Once we build positions, I think generally we are quite comfortable holding them until unless something has gone really fundamentally wrong. Volatility is not a reason to just sell out of something. So we are not benchmarked, so to say, nor do we have to publish performance numbers and say we've beaten the benchmark by this number. So those are sometimes constraints which drive you to actions, which are not necessarily in the best interest of long-term investing. So we, we're quite comfortable holding our positions as long as, like I said, if nothing fundamentally has changed. So if we can do that for public markets where exit is easy, holding on to private investments doesn't stress us at all. On that note, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about your angel investing hat as well, which I mentioned earlier in your introduction, that you've also been doing even before you've gotten into this family office where you're now CEO of. So yeah, how, how did you get into angel investing? Like what was, you know, that first experience where you referred to startup? Was it something that you intentionally studied and, and got into? It's quite interesting. You know, angel investing started for me with a visit to what is often called startup nation. I happened to be in Israel in February, 2020, right before all of us got locked down in one way or the other. So it was, it was a summit in Israel organized by our crowd which is one of Israel's most active VC investors. And I think that really opened my eyes to the whole startup ecosystem, angel investing. And it was an absolutely amazing experience, you know, visiting company offices, listening to pitches and seeing product demos. So really full credit to John Medved for putting, putting together such an event to showcase really what Israel has to offer. And in some form, I think Singapore is not far behind at all. And probably maybe Insignia could work on something similar here. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, it, it's actually how, I think how the Singapore government also got some inspiration of their own back in the early 2010s by going to Israel themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you also walked a similar path. <laughs> yeah, kind <laughs> of, Getting yes. inspired from that. Yeah, so, so how would you describe your, your angel investment scope at the moment? Or do you have any particular thesis that you carry around? And, and what do you bring to the table as an angel investor, would you say? So I think when it comes to thesis for angel investing, I think it has to be really simple because at the stage when you're investing, there isn't much beyond an idea a lot of times. So while I'm not an expert on a lot of the new things that I see and hear for the first time, but my personal thesis is that the idea should be relatable to me in some way or the other. And now it does not have to be directly related to me, but a problem which maybe either I have personally experienced or I feel that I am aware that a lot of other people in other situations could be facing. It could be something around that, or it could be things like a cause that I strongly feel about, or it could be something that I'm just really, really curious about. You know, it just seems too fascinating while I may not I have no idea about it, but I'm just extremely curious about it. So once sort of, if I may call a neural connect is established based on any of these parameters, then for me, it's just about the team and time, you know, so that in a nutshell is my own personal kind of thesis for angel investing. 
I think for many angels, it's really about personal conviction. And the, the closer things are to home, then obviously the better. And yeah, I mean, a lot of angels also like to, to learn through their investments as well. You mentioned about also considering things that you may not be so familiar with, but you're simply very curious about as well. So I also was curious about how your work at, you know, a family office, what dynamic it has with your angel investments and vice versa. How does that two things work together? I think it's been very symbiotic in my opinion, because what angel investing, getting into angel investing helped me demonstrate to my high net worth clients was thought leadership. You know, I could talk about a lot of new ideas. I could give valuable inputs to clients in areas which are outside just my day-to-day -day routine stuff. So that helped me demonstrate that I stood out in terms of thought leadership. And that helped me win a lot more business. You know, when I was on the other side of the table at Bank of Singapore, dealing with high net worth clients. And on the other side, how it helped startups or companies or businesses is that, you know, through my connections with the high net worth individuals and families, I was able to bring more capital to the table for some of these investments from like-minded investors. In a whole, it was, it was benefiting both sides. And I was kind of in the middle of that. So it was a very symbiotic relationship, I'd say. Yeah. And even until now, it's still very much symbiotic, except now you're focused very much on, on one, <laughs> yes, on one family yes. office. <laughs> Obviously, you, you, you mentioned you, you were in Israel. That's where you sort of caught the startup bug and you've you know, seen a, a lot of different ecosystems as well. From your experience and things that you've encountered so far, like what for you makes a, you know, makes a great company? Again, my theory on this is very simple. It's only a great team which makes a great company. For especially startups, I think the commitment of the founders, their personal chemistry, their complementary skills that they have as a group, you know, if all of that is good, I think that's all that you need. Now, rest of it, there are many factors. It's not just every great team is always successful, but I think that is, to my mind, is the most critical function. Right, right. You know, I love that it's very simple. You give a very simple answer. But at the same time, when it comes to reality, it's also very challenging to actually sift through and figure out which team works and which doesn't long term. So yeah, just looking at pitches, just going through a bar point slide, you can't get a feel for it. And sometimes it's difficult. But yeah, if you're lucky enough to have a few interactions, meet people a few times and get that feel, then that is what I think creates magic. And speaking of uh, getting the feel of things, uh, I wanted to now talk about Insignia Ventures Academy, <laughs> which was designed precisely for that reason, to help, you know, folks who are interested in investing in startups to get a, a feel of it, talk to as many people as possible, leverage your network effects. So yeah, how, how did you first encounter, you know, IBA? Was it referred to you or were you sought out or did you apply? What, what is your story? I was actually act actively looking out for something to help me hone my skills in the venture capital side of things. And I wanted to find something that would help me improve my understanding of venture investing, build connections in Asia. But at the same time, I wasn't looking at something which was very, just a textbook kind of a thing, study some notes and here you are. That is not what I was looking for. So this came up quite nicely and in a timely manner when I was looking out for it, that Insignia set up Insignia Ventures Academy. So I was, I literally probably ended up signing up in record time because I was mentally so ready for it that I wanted to get into something like this. The moment this came up, I was certain because I read a bit about it and it kind of ticked all the boxes for me. 
And I think it's been a brilliant decision by England to move into this area and full credit to people like you and Gail for really shaping it up well. And so you, you made that really quick decision. And I mean, the timing, like you mentioned, you went to Israel just before the pandemic and then you made, a, I guess you made already a couple of angel investments then. And then now you're looking for something to upgrade your, your, your skill set in that area. And here comes uh, IBA along, along the way. So it yes. really all happened nicely over the course of the past two, three years. What was the highlight of your experience in, in IBA? The biggest highlight for me was meeting entrepreneurs and learning about new businesses. Having that badge of insignia investor in residence was like literally the license to go out and call whoever you want. You can't imagine having that. It's like the, the free pass, you know, so I enjoyed that thoroughly. You know, I couldn't have otherwise picked up a phone, gone to somebody and say, hey, you know, come on, tell me what, what do you do? You know, he has no reason to spend time with me, but it was a beautiful privilege to have investor in residence and it, it exposed me to a lot of people and also taught me a lot of new things. And it's, I would say it's not even just a, it's a privilege and it's also a requirement <laughs> to actually graduate. <laughs> you actually have to do it more times than I guess you would normally in your angel investment sort of routine, I, I would say. So what would you say is the biggest thing that you've gained, either a skill set, a mindset, or even a person that you've met through the program from, from the experience? I think other than knowledge, which of course I've gained, I think it's the connections. Fortunately for me in my cohort, I was perhaps the only person in with a banking and finance background. Uh, luckily, the rest were either entrepreneurs or they were working in some startups or they were just working in businesses that were completely different from my world of financial services. So that diversity made the connections a lot more enriching and valuable because otherwise a lot of courses and things that I've pursued in my professional career have tended to be around areas of finance particularly, then you would find lots of people with similar backgrounds. I was really, really pleasantly surprised with the diversity in my group where I said, wow, I'm the only one from banking. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, it could have been a fish out of water experience, but you you also evolved <laughs> with, the, with the crowd, I guess, <laughs> and, and were able to make the most out of it. So yeah, speaking of making the most out of things, how would you say IBA has, you know, impacted or influenced your career, especially with, you know, transitioning into family offices? and the role that you now play in the, in the region's ecosystem. So I think what this thing did for me was it really helped me understand the nuances, some of the nuances of VC investing, which in turn has kind of made my interactions with founders and other players in the ecosystem much more credible. You know, otherwise I would have been approaching them more like a real rookie, but this has brought in more substance to our discussions. So that's, that's kind of been my biggest sort of gain from it. And it really helps me in my current role more so than my previous role, because now I directly interact with a lot of founders and other companies when we evaluate investments and this comes in handy. Right, right, right. And now you have, I don't think you had ICs when you were in Bank of Singapore, right? <laughs> but, uh, <Never>. no. <laughs> but now you're having like, you know, I suppose you're also having ICs now working in a, in a family office. So yeah, it's great that IBA was able to give you a lot of fuel to work with in terms of talking with, with founders nowadays in your current role. 
and really exploring the ecosystem further. What advice would you give for, you know, where we're just, as of this recording, we're just getting into port four in the next, at the end of September. And, you know, we were super excited to have another group of venture fellows, hopefully, you know, a, a mixture of very experienced people like yourself and also who have the energy to really get out there and, and really talk to founders just like you did. So what advice would you have for this upcoming cohort and future venture fellows who are looking to go through and make the most out of IVA? My only one advice would be don't stick to the vertical that you're familiar with. So having done a stint with Revolut, I had some background in fintech. And actually when I had given my preferences, so instinctively it was fintech was my first choice. So, you know, that's what I know and let's get him there. But in the end, I was really quite happy not to be a part of fintech and be a part of the edtech group. You know, it opened again a whole new world for me. And I learned a lot about things that I had no idea about. So I think anybody joining this should join with a completely open mind and just again, not stick to your areas of comfort. While it's good if you know something, be an expert in it and, you know, develop further. But I think a lot of technologies and things converge in some way or the other. Having a bit of knowledge on some other domains just comes in very handy, in my opinion. And even if, as you were in the in the edtech team, you also got the opportunity to listen to the other presentations and pitches from, from the other verticals as well. So you can really get exposed to, you know, all the sectors that are being covered in a particular cohort. So I think it's definitely, definitely exciting, especially for those like yourself who are very curious, want to learn a lot and, you know, explore new things. So on that note, I want to go into our rapid fire round, the most important part of the podcast. So a lot more shorter answers can keep them short and sweet. So the first one is, what are the top three traits that make a great angel investor for you? The top three traits would be having a big heart, deep pockets, and a short memory. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the short memory, I, I did not expect. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's angels, you know, so angels have to be angel-like. <laughs> What's your favorite book, podcast, or resource to learn about, you know, wealth management and, and, you know, just the flow of capital around the world, those kinds of things? I think a book that I've read many times is, it's called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. That is something which I would say, it's almost like a handbook, which I keep on the side of my desk. And so many times I refer to it because some things about just money and what it, and behavioral aspects of what money decisions involving money do. I think that book is a total absolute gem. I'd say it's a street. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave the link, Psychology of Money, in, in the podcast description and in the transcript for anyone out there who wants to check it out. Maybe end up putting it on their bedside <laughs> as well. <laughs> what digital technology or innovation excites you the most today or something that you just really want to learn more about? Mobility. Autonomous vehicles, things like AAM, advanced aerial mobility. I think that is something which fascinates me. But not just for the technology behind the vehicle, but because of the impact by way of behavioral changes that it's going to bring in the society. You know, we have just no idea how life is going to change or to what degree life can change. You know, if you have a fully autonomous fleet on the street, you have these drones delivering things. There are so many aspects of your life that it will change other than just how you move from point A to point B. So it's those second, third degree changes which completely fascinates me because it opens up possibilities that haven't even been imagined of. So that's a technology 
that really fascinates me. And something that I want to learn a lot about more because it's partly related to our business is about nanoparticles such as graffiti. So it's a wonderful material and its use cases are just amazing. So that is my current fascination. So what's the most memorable class or course that you've learned from or, or taught? Apart from uh, IVA. Not to think common. It would have been IVA. Sorry, I already, I already said that. Uh, but yeah. And one of the editions of the Singapore Printech Festival, I had attended a talk by Tony Faddle. Tony Faddle is the inventor of the iPod. And I was completely blown away by that session. The whole talk around, again, talking about new futuristic materials and technology and things like that. So it was one of the most fascinating sessions or talks that I've heard. And I'd highly recommend you to watch a documentary called General Magic. It was the story of history's most talented technology team ever. And it even featured Tony Faddle as well. So General General Magic, we'll leave that at the transcript as well for anyone to check out. Yeah, just a fun question up next is, you know, how close is your current work to your childhood dream? <laughs> You'd be completely shocked with that answer that it is nowhere close. Right. I mean, I wasn't, <laughs> I would actually be more shocked if it was actually your childhood dream to be a <laughs> family <laughs> office CEO, you know, <laughs> I would be like, wow, what, 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 what childhood did you have? <laughs> so, well, I actually wanted to be a doctor. Like back in those days, you know, doctor, engineer, lawyer were kind of things that were the most respectable professions in India. And so I was truly interested in that area and I wanted to be a doctor. And I've actually given medical entrance exams as well. And then your son is also a podcaster, which I found out also through IVA. And he's had several, you know, tech luminaries. I think Aaron was also on his show and a couple other folks. For you, what was the, you know, what is your favorite episode or takeaway out of the episodes that he's hosted so far? I think actually there are a lot of them. I actually totally love them and I've probably made more notes than he has watching those episodes. You, you're, you're just at the back, just taking all the other notes while, while he was doing the interview. Uh, so on one of the episodes, we had this gentleman called Naveen Amara Surya. He is the COO of the Contentment Foundation. And he shared something which I thought is really, really very relevant for all of us. And he said this, that in the age of distraction that we live in, attention is a very valuable skill. So build your muscle of attention and it will be the foundation of many more beautiful things. So which I thought was a very, very powerful statement because we truly are in this age of distraction. Nobody has time. No, everybody is multitasking, doing five things. You know, everybody wants a quick one and it is going to be a very valuable skill, I think. And I found that really very relevant. And on another episode, which I really enjoyed, it was with Nelly Wartoft, who was CEO of Tiger Hall. And that episode had some really funny stories and examples. And one thing I remember her saying was, you know, social media is like eating a pizza. So first you really want it. And then you say, why did I have it? And then you order it again. <laughs> and it's just a whole cycle yeah, yeah, of regret. Yeah. These were some interesting moments, but otherwise, yeah, I truly enjoy listening to those interviews and each one of them, people have some amazing things to share and talk about. No, yeah, I think what you're talking about, the whole attention thing and with the social media, very, very relevant stuff. And I think some, one of the most difficult decisions, I think, 
is always trying to pick what to prioritize and regardless of whatever you do in, in life, right? Like there's just so many options, right, to, to pick from. What's your favorite go-to destination in Southeast Asia or what trip are you most looking forward to taking in the near future? I think in Southeast Asia, it's hard to beat Bali. You know, it just offers so much that you end up going there a lot of times. So I think that would be one of my favorite destinations in Southeast Asia. But the trip that we really as a family are looking forward to or would be next on our agenda is an African safari. And this would be the, yeah, this would be the first time, I suppose, right? For you. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, I hope you guys are able to to make that trip soon. And uh, yeah, Bali, of course, I mean, it's been mentioned many times on the on the show. So I think it, it definitely deserves that recognition. And last, last question to wrap up around is what's your favorite activity to de-stress or, you know, take care of your mental health or do self-care? That's a top secret. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. It's that, it, it's, that, it's that good, everybody. It's that good. You know, you can't even share it. <laughs> I only promise to tell you on one condition that it doesn't leak to my wife. So shopping or retail therapy, as I call it, is my right. activity. <laughs> Is, 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 is your wife in the, in the startup ecosystem? I think as long as she's not in this community, I don't think she'll, she'll learn about it. I think. And as long as you're not listening to this, to this show when it comes out, I think you should be fine. But yeah, no, shopping and yeah, that, that's a pretty new answer, I'd say. Like I've, I've asked this question every episode and yeah, it's always interesting to have some interesting answers like yours. But yeah, I think it's definitely important whatever way you, you can to actually, you know, have as one of our guests put it before, some sort of detachment and some sort of you know, way to take a break and take care of yourself. Yeah, on that note, thanks so much, Harsh, for coming on the show. It's always great to have IBA fellow alumni come on the show and, you know, share their their slice of what they're doing, you know, not just in your case, not just in South Asia, but startup ecosystem as a whole. And looking forward to, you know, new, new stuff that you, you will be doing in your current role. And hopefully you can come back as well to the feature cohorts, be, you know, <laughs> be a mentor and whatnot. Thanks again, Harsh, for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Paulo. Thank you very much. And I wish you all the best with the future cohorts and the new things that you're planning. Stay on the line with us for more conversations with our founders and investors in the region. Until our next call, I am Paolo Aquino, and this has been On Call with Insignia Ventures.